Hello, everyone, and welcome to the State of Sport Management, a podcast with Dr. Matthew Hummel coming from the University of Cincinnati in Cincinnati, Ohio. Here's this week's episode. Well, welcome everybody back to another episode of State of Sport Management. I'm going to invite back a returning guest to our podcast. Yay. And last time, I think we had talked about, I think we called it third year review, but it was actually really mm-hmm. about second year review, which I guess I can give mm-hmm. a quick background on why that is. But um, to not slow anything down, we have Dr. Alicia Cintron joining us here. And we're going to talk a little bit about essentially alternative academic careers. We're going to talk about kind of like using some innovation management principles within this alternative career. Um, And then we're essentially going to talk about how people can contact her to talk about that. So Dr. Cintron, thanks for being back and joining us. Thanks for having me back, Matt. And it's such an interesting and related but unrelated topic. (laughs) Yeah. No, I think we're going to get a lot of even non-sport management folks that listen to this Mm because alternative academic careers is this thing that it's one of the few things that I think integrates all PhD conversations of people deciding to leave and pursue something different because either higher education wasn't fulfilling what they need or their family needs are requiring something different. Um, and to give background, if Dr. Cintron was here earlier and we did a third year review talking about kind of like the promotion tenure process, and a lot of universities have a process where you do one submission before tenure and you get feedback from uh, your dissertation, not dissertation, your PNT committee at the like department college mm-hmm. level, your dean, and then potentially any higher ups. And obviously, everyone's is a little bit different, but ours was a little bit different here. You see, they do a two year and a four year review, so you get kind of like two mm-hmm. two mm-hmm. bites of the apple of deciding if this is the best fit for you. Um, so, if anyone's interested in that, definitely check that out. She she did a fantastic job for that. Um, but yeah, but did I, because then I left, (laughs) (laughs) whoa, 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 (laughs) leaving doesn't mean that your review wasn't still (laughs) true. Very true. Um, but regardless, it's still a great listen to, and I actually just listened to it recently because even though I'm going up for promotion tenure this year, I still think there's a lot of crossovers with UC's process here. So for you, the listeners, sometimes your PNT or your second year, third year review, process be similar. So that listen could be great um, to kind of check out, but that's all in the past. Let's talk about what's going on right now. So uh, tell us a little bit, what are you doing right now? Like how have things changed? Yeah. So uh, last May I decided, well, actually it was before May, but um, that's when I put my notice in officially, I decided to leave academia and I honestly didn't have a plan. I, I needed to find something new though I really I was at a point I think I was in my ending my fourth year on the tenure track and I just really realized that I wasn't happy and COVID really punctuated a lot of a lot of these these uh inner sentiments that I just was ignoring up until that point and so and I had a family emergency and I was just like you know what life is too short I need to I need to be doing something that I love and that I really feel at home with and I was always waiting for that to happen for me while on the tenure track, like, okay, I can, I can breathe easy now. I feel really good in this role and it just never happened for me. So um, yeah, I left with absolutely no plan. I was already intending to move back home with my parents for the summer um, because of of a family emergency. And then um, I just gave myself the space really at that point to figure out what I was going to do. And I, so I started with one thinking that I wanted to work actually in government or work for think tanks. Cause that seemed like a seamless transition from academia and research 
Uh, and I would feel, I felt that think tank work in government, specifically federal government policy work would, would be really impactful. And, uh, but I, so I started working through that and like applying for jobs and looking for things. And I did a couple of informational interviews as well with some people that worked in think tanks and who had PhDs to, to get a better understanding of how they transitioned in, into that space. And I also, so I, I did, I was doing all that. I read the book, What Color Is Your Parachute? Which is a career finding type of book. Because again, I had no idea what I was going to do. You know, you, you get, you go to grad school and, for us, at least for sport management, it's you're going to grad school to teach and to do research. You're not going to do, you're not going to get a degree to do something outside of, of higher education. So I, I literally had no idea what I was going to do. And I knew I didn't want to work for a team or for a league. I um, was feeling a type of, and still do feel a type of way about capitalistic things of that nature, but that's neither here nor there. So I, I really just wanted to do something that was that was, that was going to speak to me that I felt good about doing the work. And so think tanks, government work, still looking. I ended up um, first launching a travel business. So that's something that is a, is a passion of mine. I've, I love travel. I love culture. I love learning about the world. I love just kind of going anywhere and everywhere. And so me and a friend of mine, and this was something we had always talked about, but now we both had the space to do to do this business and, and to create this business because I knew that I wouldn't have never had the space for it mentally or the time if I was still working full time as a PhD. And so uh, we launched that business and then I, I did some travel and again, still giving myself the space to really figure out what I wanted to do because I knew while the travel business was great, I knew I wanted to do something still within the uh, academic space that didn't require me working in academia. So something academic adjacent. And I initially thought I would stick with copy editing and maybe like research project management or research assistance in, in some space. Cause I really, I love actually copy editing. One of my favorite things about being on the tenure track was reviewing manuscripts, which I know a lot of people kind of scoff at, but I love I love reading and I love learning that uh, about the research that people are doing. And I love being able to give people constructive feedback to make their, their work better. That was truly one of my favorite things. I know that again, that that's a weird thing to like, but uh, so yeah, I, um, and I worked on, I did uh, one dissertation. I edited a dissertation. So I'm like, Oh, this is, this is cool. Like it's, it's long form. It's, it's heavy, but it's also really important. I mean, someone spent, hours and days and weeks building this document and now I get to read it and to edit it and to help them make it better so that's where I thought I was going to go with with uh, academic business is like copy editing and dissertation editing and, and research assistance or research project management so I had that in the back of my head and then uh, at some point in the fall another researcher reached out to me um, Nefertiti Walker the Nefertiti Walker, and um, and proposed a really interesting um, opportunity for me. She is looking to become more forward-facing and more public scholar. She is already a public scholar, but she really wants to focus on this in her next uh, chapter of her career. And needs some was looking for someone to really help her and guide her through through that. And as someone with the research experience, the sport management experience, and just the wherewithal of the space and the availability, as I was very available. Um, 
she thought that I would be a good fit. And so I've been working with her since last fall and we continue to work together. And so that really kind of put a, a bug in my head, like, oh, this is, you know, this is really, this is really cool that I'm helping someone achieve their goals, their career goals, and helping them reach the audience that they that they really want to reach with their research. I think you she she's dedicated her life to this to this area. And and we all as researchers have de- dedicated our careers and our lives to researching this specific area. And there are people in the public space or researchers who then are able to take that public and actually impact the people that it, and help the people that they're researching, right? So like your workaholic um, workaholism research, you're able now because you've been public facing and, and have created some works that are uh, accessible for the standard person can actually impact someone's life in, in, in the sense that they know that that they're dedicating too much time to their work and that it's burning them out and that there's there's things that they can do and that their their department should be doing in order to help alleviate that. But we spent, as researchers, spend so much time kind of keeping that stuff in our academic circles. And so with all that said, the business I decided to, to lean towards was a, a branding and communication business for academics and to help them take their research from their academic circle out into the public audience that that they can impact the most. So that's a great overview. And I got lots of questions because we kind of went through that transition of leaving academia, not necessarily having a plan, which is incredibly courageous and awesome at the same time, to then kind of feeling out that process to then putting a stake in the ground of what you were doing. So let's kind of go back to um, like leaving, like I always think that this is such an interesting point of like all academic people are kind of always in unsure of like, when is the time to make the leap and all that stuff? Like, do you think that there's like a time when you started thinking about that and then started thinking about maybe what to do or how you should do that or transition, like kind of take us to that time. It's not even so much about the leaving, but it's more about where you were going. Like, can you kind of take us through that process of like, okay, I'm going to leave this behind higher education in some form, or at least my position. Like, was your focus solely on, I don't care what I'm doing. I just need to get out and then I'll figure out what I'm doing. Or were you thinking actively about what you should be, what you were going to be doing in that next step? No, I was thinking that I needed to leave and I needed, and then I would figure it out later because I, I knew I, I would. I, and this sounds kind of, I don't know, you can take it however you want, but I have a PhD, like I'll, I'll figure it out. And if, if all else fails, I can travel and do what I really want to do, which is work at a winery and pour, <laughs> pour <laughs> people wine and learn. Like, I mean, at that point it was, it was overwhelming, but it's also like, wow, the world, I could, I could literally do anything right now and not feel, but I also am in a, um, you know, in in very much a different space than a lot of people. I'm single. I don't have a family. So I have that luxury of being able to, to leave my job and and be flexible. And I know not a lot of people do. And, and, and so I definitely wouldn't encourage someone just to leave without a backup plan, but also like I knew that if I didn't give myself the space to, to figure out what I wanted to do, which was, and the only way I could do that was leaving. Like I, I can't, I could not bring myself to think about things outside of my job while I was in that job. It was the, the work, the stress and the, um, that I put on myself 
really kind of overtook a lot of, I mean, this is in part of the reason why I had to leave was like, I just, I couldn't balance it. And so, yeah, I had to give myself the space to figure out what I wanted to do. And it didn't really come again until Neff came to me. And even then it wasn't for a few months that I was like, this is cool. This is what I could do. This is, this is, this is great. It's it. And it will help so many people in so many different facets. Yeah. And like I said, I think it's awesome that you had like the courage essentially to choose freedom without knowing exactly what that would, what the shape of that would be. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I agree. Like everyone has different life situations. Like some people can like hit the reset button without knowing exactly where they're going, but then other people can't. But the idea that you still chose like that, that door is still pretty awesome to me. But um, also you're talking about the PhD programs because Dr. Sinchar and I both went to the same program. So we both did University of Louisville. And so other people can pipe in essentially when this is posted, if other people feel like that's right. Of yeah, we, I don't really remember any classes or even content within a specific class related to like alternative academic careers. And I'd say that's, I'll make the leap because I'm, looking a lot at PhD programs right now that most people don't have at least, uh, especially not a class on it, but maybe there's a little bit of content within the class, but not that I'm aware of. I mean, I mean, it sounds like that's yeah. what you're hinting at, that, that there wasn't really any preparation within this process from your PhD program. No, there's none in that and really nothing in where I was working before, right? Like, I feel that I didn't discover what alt-ac or alternative academic uh, academic was until I left. And like, then I discovered this whole, whole new space where loads of people live because I mean, we as sport management researchers and, and with that background, there's usually tons of jobs, right? So somebody ends up landing somewhere eventually, but there's, you know, other disciplines that they're constantly on the job market and, and constantly not getting jobs in more of like the, the humanities area um, and even in some social sciences. But so, yeah, so there's like this whole, there's this whole universe and websites and career coaches, PhD career coaches specifically that help PhDs figure out what to do next outside of their identity at in the academy and it's it's incredible but yeah and it's and it's hard for us as sport management um researchers too because it's like well what else are we supposed to do or, you know our team's hiring phds mm, if anything maybe they're hiring like psychologists but we're not even we're not trained in, the, in those spaces and so it's it's hard to really even conceptualize it for our discipline but it still should be something that is discussed like because i feel and this is this might come across a type of way, but like you're bullied essentially into going down this this path of of teaching and research and not exposed to what else, what other opportunities are out there besides just teaching and research. And that's it's unfortunate and it's unfair, I think, because people have different needs and different wants. And sometimes like I I thought this, that career was going to be it for me. And then I get into it and I'm like, Oh no, this isn't it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, a couple thoughts in there of, I think some programs, like I think of like history PhDs and literature PhDs where the placement rates aren't as high that I think their PhD programs are probably doing a better job of saying like, Hey, this might not work out for you. Even for the people in the room that you're thinking academia is the place for you there might not be a spot for you. And so here's 
here's some thoughts on what you can do with your history, literature, like whatever PhD. Mm-hmm. Sport management, since we're so new and there seems to be so like a lot of growth that I don't think it's become such a, a pertinent discussion for us mm-hmm. and that it should. Um, kind of my recommendation is, I don't know if you should have a whole class, but you should at least have like all like content that's week or two long talking about and bringing in people like you and another person, Victor Kidd, who's like, who's on the sports psychology mm-hmm. side and working mm-hmm. outside of that, that bringing them in and saying like, Hey, you know, here's what I thought of my PhD. Here's what I'm doing. Here's, I was able to transfer those skills. Yada, yada, yada. I think that would be kind of like a home run situation. Yeah, for sure. And if, and if all else fails, like it can help people and researchers lead or land more consulting work or things like that, where they're still have their home base, but also are helping and working with teams and, and their local organizations and making money off of it. And also getting some research uh, um, collaborations as well. So it's, it's not, because also we're not taught really to ha- how to like build those and cultivate those relationships and how, how best we can serve practitioners and how they can help us as well. And so all of that stuff can really come together because you don't have to just like do a research report and then walk away. Like there's, there's way more integrated and, and fun work that we can be doing with practitioners. It's just a matter of figuring those things out. And in an entrepreneurial spirit, you can do those things. You just have to give yourself the time and the space to really to figure it out and to work with them. But I, I think that we kind of limit ourselves. Yeah. And I think that's where I want to kind of transition right to like your Cintron revised business that's going on. Cause I have the website pulled up of why do we as academia, why do we suck so bad at communicating with non-academic folks? Like I definitely think of, we go into a conference room and we have people that are just like us sitting around and we give a presentation for 15 or 20 minutes and you kind of have to rush through things. And even that communication probably is pretty poor, but why itself, why do we struggle so bad talking to the people that we're trying to help the most? You know, I go back to grad school too. It's really, uh, we really, you know, it was a hard trend. It's a hard right transition of, of going from writing and reading, you know, normal works like books to this like very dense, passive voiced, you know, publications, these, these journal articles. And I'm not saying like, it's just, they're just not written for consumption, <laughs> for enjoyable consumption. They're written to, to prove a point, to prove their hypothesis or, or, or to discuss, you know, what they, their findings. And, and so there's a formula to writing research articles. And then, so we just internalize that because that's what we know. We've spent months, if not years, sometimes writing these papers. And so we know that language because the language of a peer reviewed journal requires this robust academic language that is not, um, not fun (laughs) and then and then when we go to talk about it yeah it's it's the same it's kind of the same way and and it's hard to really then be like how do I how do I talk about this if not in this language that I only know it by yeah the, the the not fun thing I think of is like very technical and it's that if I'm in the room with an athletic director they're not going to care about my theoretical framework or if I'm framing that progression correctly. And that doesn't mean that it's not important because it is. It's just the idea of they don't care so much about all the background. They just want you to say 
why does this matter? How can I implement it? Or what results am I going to see? Or how can I assess this? Like they just care about the results. And sometimes fairly, we're so worried about making sure that the structure fully is as tight as possible. And that sometimes that means that our implications aren't as strong as they need to be. I mean, is that something that you're seeing with some of this early work that you're having with your business? It's not only that, it's also attempting to recognize who their audience is, who who wants to read this work? Why would they want to read this work? And so it's it's really figuring that out. Also, it's not you know not every everybody's um, research is widely consumable, right? Some things are very quite specific. So it, it's helping them figure that out, but also then focusing on the actual message. So it's the audience and it's the message. What's the a key part? And I think that academics are afraid of reducing or minimalizing the, the rigor that they spent on the paper and on the research, but you don't, the findings are there and you know how to back it up. You need to, what you need to do is be able to effectively and efficiently communicate how this impacts the audience, right? You know that um, the average American has an eighth grade reading level. Mm. So imagine anybody off the street attempting to pick up a peer-reviewed journal article and then reading it, or even a journalist. I know, I know there's plenty of times in my career where I was reading peer-reviewed work and I still had no idea what they were talking about. And I had a PhD, right? And so it's it's the communication of of, of your work without feeling that you're reducing the rigor and coming across with a, a valid message to a valid audience who is who is receptive of it. Yeah. And I mean, I can speak that last part of I'm trying to get better about promoting some of the stuff that I'm doing research wise to practitioners and I'll send them an article and they're like, okay. <laughs> right. Who has the time to read the 30 page article that with words that they have to look up every, you know, it's, it's, so you, it's, it's more work on your end, but that's, I also feel like that's the point of the research is not just to do it, it's to do it and to make sure that the people who it can impact, that it does that, that it reaches them. I mean, and some people, yeah, they're going to do their research, they're going to go home, they're going to get tenure, and they're going to live their, mm. out their days happily ever after, and that's totally fine. But I think you people do that their, their research a disservice by keeping it in academic circles if it can impact a broader audience. Yeah, I also think it's, it's a great measurement of how impactful your research is, is you can also translate it to talk to practitioners. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where you mm-hmm. can kind of really step in because there is such a struggle. Um, and for some of us, it's even finding the right audience for, for me, I do a lot of college athletic research. It's easy for me to find contact information for the people that matter. Mm-hmm. But if you do like sport for development research, like our friend and former colleague, Pierce Svensson, maybe it's harder to find the, a big, like a saturated, audience to constantly be talking to them. And that's also potentially where help can come in, but going back to the PhD program. So I know we, we bashed them earlier, but let's think about like, what skills did you potentially pick up during your PhD program that you think are helping during this business uh, venture that you have right now? Um, you know, I don't know if there's anything specific within my graduate program, as much as there is just like an understanding of, of higher education and of the, the struggles of, on the tenure track. I did though at U of L at Louisville uh, attend a entrepreneurship academy. So I've always had this, this really deep interest in, in entrepreneurship 
and they offered this free academy from the business school. It was like once a month for a semester that we would meet for a few hours and we'd learn about the lean uh, startup method, which is a specific um, person. I think it's uh, Steve Blank. I think I might be messing that up. That name sounds familiar. But, yeah. So he, um, he may or may not have launched this lean startup idea. And so it's just, so I learned a little bit about that and that I, and I really just did that because I wanted to teach an entrepreneurship class for entrepreneurship class. And then I, but I've always had this interest in, in the space. And um, so I took it, took it for what I could. So that's something that I was able to do in graduate school was take advantage of, of some free programming that they offered. But I don't know if anything specific within my program helped me develop skills that I'm using today in this role. But again, it's kind of because I went to grad school and because I was on the tenure track, I understand what those programs and, and what that job entails. And so that's how I'm able to then address my audience and, and to, and, and to address their pain points is because I've gone through those struggles. Yeah. I think the one obvious thing that probably is easy to overcome is, or to overlook is the sense of like, you, you've been through the process of, with your clients, like you've gone through the tenure track process, just like, nefted um that whoever else essentially working with you so you understand essentially the situation they're in what their weaknesses would be of connecting with outside folks how you can brand them in a proper way that they potentially mm -hmm. don't have but you can you know what tools they're going to bring to the situation you can help kind of mold that to, to better mm -hmm. fit those practitioners am i interpreting mm -hmm. that kind of correctly yeah yeah it's a hundred percent and i I have built my services so that they're very personalized and very one-on-one -on -one because everyone has different goals and everyone has different skills that they're coming to the, to the plate with. So I, there's a, I have a framework that is the foundation and it's building, it's working on personal branding and communication because pers and personal branding, which is also something that sounds so ick, but think about, you know, when you go to a restaurant, you're Googling it first to see if a new restaurant, you're Googling it first to see if, other people have gone and if it's any good, right? So you're qualifying those things and not to reduce researchers to restaurants. Apologies to anybody offended. But what I'm saying is like, you have to have some sort of public profile out there to show your work and to show that you are, are an expert in this, in this space. And maybe your university website has some information. It probably has your CV and it probably has your publications, but it's not really also not telling a story, right? You as a researcher have the opportunity and have the power to build your own story, whether that's through Twitter, LinkedIn, your own blog, a newsletter, a Substack, a medium, what, what have you, you can do those things. You just have to do them and you have to know how, where to start and how to start those. And so whether or not it's submitting an op-ed or wanting to start a blog or maybe wanting to build a public profile through Twitter. I am there to help them with that personal branding part, the communication skills. So often I see uh, researchers just tweeting their, um, their journal articles and say like, here's the title, this is what we found. And that is, it's, it's helpful for other academics to read those things, but is it helpful for the, for the broader audience, right? So we should be, instead of maybe posting your, like the cover page of your, your article, why don't you create a quick infographic that, that surmises the data that you found and then link your article 
for more information, here's this or contact me and I can, I'm happy to give a quote, you know, things like that. It's just, it's simple things like that, that make it, that can make a difference. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm even someone that will try to put a link out for new articles that are going on, but then it's, yeah. Are you going to make the next step and provide maybe a really shorthand writing for what it is? Can you provide a visual aid? Can you help make this more digestible? Because there's people that essentially I'll go through, I'll read a little bit of their abstract, a little bit of the discussion, but yeah, I think even academics aren't going to read these massive papers. Like who, right. who has a time to constantly be consuming stuff, especially if it's outside of your specific research area. And again, it goes back to who your audience is. If your audience is academics, then just, just post the link and the article and a screenshot of the title and carry on. But if, if your audience, if you want your audience to be athletic directors, you're going to do some hashtags. You're going to tag some organizations and you're going to make it so that it is digestible for them because you also have to think about your own consumption on Twitter and on social media, right? Like you, maybe you're going to stop and read that 30 page paper, but I would say 99% of the time you you'll save it and then forget about it. Right. Like you, we are, in a, in a time of our lives. And I, and I don't, I think we've been like this for a bit where our attention span is so short and we are going to consume what we want to consume. And so you have to, you have to meet the audience where they are. If this is a space that you want to enter again, if you want to continue your conversation with academics in those circles, by all means, but if you want your research to be out there and if you want to land op-eds and you want to land interviews and you want to really make an impact in, in the public space in, in which you study, then you got you have to do these things. And, and I also fully understand that it is time consuming, right? We we as researchers have already such limited time. And so another thing that I work with with my clients is like building this into their writing process and 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 it's still extra time. It's always going to be extra time, but as long as you approach it as you're doing the research and, and thinking about it constantly, and as opposed to something that's in the background, oh, I'll do this when the paper's up or when the paper's done, you should be preparing it constantly and, and, and having those conversations in public. If you're doing research in a specific area, you should be following people who are covering this area and talking to them and, and things like that. So that when the paper comes up, you have a, a base, uh, audience base built, and now you potentially could, you know, um, have more conversations about about what your work is and how it can impact. And so, I guess to kind of wrap up here, I do want to say that if you can check out Dr. Cintron's website, it's www.cintron, C-I-N-T-R-O-N, revised.com. So again, www.cintronrevised.com. But Dr. Sinjan, how can they contact you directly? Obviously, it looks like on the website, there's a way to contact you there. But if they want to directly contact you by email, what's the best way? Yep, I obviously am on email at alicia, or alicia, A-L-I-C-I-A, at sintronrevised.com. And I'm on the Twitter at um, my hash, my... Uh, at the Twitter. <laughs> at, on the Twitter, yes, on the Twitters. Um, uh, A to the Sintron, so A... T-O-T-H-E-C-I-N-T-R-O-N. I just realized that that's kind of convoluted. I'll have to adjust that. Because that's another thing is you need to have, 
you know, you need to have an accessible public profile too, that people like the name just rolls off the tongue. So maybe I need to adjust my Yeah. Well, in case, in case she does adjust it, you can always just put, <laughs> like search for her name. I'm sure it'll pop up pretty easily. Um, yes. And then I'm also on LinkedIn as well, but yeah, through um, any of those, I am, I'm also available for like, you know, chats. If someone is interested in, in shifting into the public space and just wants to, to talk, I'm, I'm more than happy to, to strategize and, and to help. But like the, the mission of this company really is to make research more accessible. And the conduit is do researchers. I can't do it all. I can't just go through everyone's research and then, and then write short, you know, short form things on their ideas. Like this, this has to be a, um, a group effort, right? Like we want we should want our research to be accessible, especially if you work in a land grant institution, you know, this is, or a public institution, this is a public good. We are public servants. Well, I'm not, I'm no longer a public servant. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really important. Your work really deserves to be out there and no matter how niche and how specific it is, it, it deserves it because you are doing, you've done it like literally, you have to think about, about, you know, think back to why you went to graduate school and why you picked the research line that you picked because you saw some sort of injustice or some sort of issue and wanted to address that. And so you've, you've dedicated your life to doing this, this work. And the only one that knows it is you and your academic friends, right? So like it, it, it deserves to be out there. Yes, no, I totally agree. And yes, as public collective, we do lots of great research. We just need to get in front of the right people because trust me, people want to read it. That's the problem. Yes. I think a lot of us just think the three people that we collaborate with are the people that are going to care about this. No, like it, it's it's very relevant to the things that are happening all the time. Right, exactly. And you know, there's also this conversation about the Ivy Tower and, and how separate and how holier than thou uh, higher education and researchers and academics can carry themselves in comparison to the regular person. And so there's this really big split, I feel like, that's this mistrust or this, this I don't, volatile relationship now, I think, with, with higher education and, and society that could, you know, it could be minimized if we made an effort to be more accessible and to help people where they are. I mean, we're doing the research. Now just do that extra bit to help people where they are. Yeah. And that's why I think this business is awesome. You're going to help essentially elevate so many folks to mm -hmm. get them in front of the right people and also help mm -hmm. their careers. Like this is going to be mm -hmm. such a windfall for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I just hope that um, at, there's a, at some point higher education shifts there. RPT, their tenure promotion to actually like value this work. I know, and there are institutions that do, not every R1, I don't think, but there are many institutions that value public work as a part of their RPT package. And it's just a matter of getting the, the top research institutions also to, to see that this is valuable work and that should be considered uh, when you go up for, for promotion. Yeah, awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Sintron, for doing this a second time. And she's even doing this from, from Europe. So we are, we're really, I feel like the last couple I did one and well, I guess I did one with Wayne who's here in Cincy. So that one doesn't count. But the one before that, I had someone in Europe and in Australia at the same, during the same time. So we've definitely oh, wow. gotten some international flavor uh, recently. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Dr. Sintron, thanks for joining us. Thank you.
And thanks, everybody. Hopefully you enjoyed this. Even if you have no interest in alt academic careers, it's probably a really interesting discussion that you probably have seen being uh, discussed between other people that you know. So hopefully you found it useful. But uh, hopefully you'll continue on and you'll listen to our next episode coming up shortly.